0: Hey, welcome back, folks. This is Jeff Benjamin and Bruce Kelly with the Investment News Podcast. Got another great episode coming at you. A couple of good guests, starting off with Tyler Galash, Executive Director of Healthy Markets. He's here to talk to us about what's likely to happen with all this Robinhood, GameStop, AMC, day trading, blah, blah, blah. Now that regulators don't forget have hit. money making. Money, oh, money making, baby. You got to make and money, money losing.
1: Yeah. <laughs> You speak for yourself, Bruce. Uh- <laughs> no, 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 no. I don't trade individual stocks, as you know, Jeff. But yes. some people made money in this. You see stories, yeah. you know, on some. our website and other venues. Of course, yeah. you know, some people some made guys, money. Some, some people, people made won't. money. Some people lost money. Some people refinanced their mortgage. But uh,
0: what uh, what we're going to look at is now that the the dust seems to be starting to settle although that could oh, be temporary. Oh, I don't
1: temporary. know. If it's starting to settle. It's um, it's
0: We want to know what the regulators and the lawmakers are likely to do now that they have uh, this is on their radar screen and if they're going to get their meat hooks into this and just kind of, you know, kill all the fun, but uh first of all, let's uh, welcome Tyler. How you doing, Tyler? Maybe you can tell us a little bit what What is healthy markets? It sounds like a good thing. You guys eat salads
2: for lunch or, or what? <laughs> you know, it, it's funny because we sit here and we go, well, what do we want our markets to be? And you can't, you can, who can object to healthy markets? There are other organizations <laughs> with better markets and, and all sorts of other things. So we, we figured we'd just try for healthy. We launched in 2015 after I, frankly, had left the government. I, I'm an old Senate staffer, and SEC staffer. And the idea was Look, the the buy side institutional investors are chronically underrepresented in terms of just knowing what's going on in DC in the regulatory space. And so one of the things I had an interest in doing, I I'd, I'd worked for for Carl Levin during the financial crisis and afterwards and the drafting of Dodd-Frank, and I I thought, "Hey, let's try to see if we can help bring the buy side up to speed a little bit and how regulations are working and how they're impacting them because you know, oftentimes you go to a Senate office or you go to the SEC, and it's twenty to 1, 30 to one, broker dealers and banks to every investment manager or every. Pension. And when you say
1: "buy," Tyler, when you say yeah. "buy side," you mean mom and dad, uh, mom and pop investors, the retail investor, basically. No, right? when I
2: say "buy side," I mean we're we're uh, look, my members are, are Kelpers, Colorado Para. Oh,
1: okay. The biggest
2: right? we got we've got institutional firms. And what's been really interesting for us is over the last several years, look, we've got a lot of evolution in the market space. We now have something called meme stocks. Who would have thought we'd have that five years ago? We have SPACs, blank check companies, coming Mm -hmm. out of our ears. We've got Bitcoin trading at tens of thousands of dollars, but it's worth only what somebody else is willing to pay for it. And what I think, you know, as we talk about, what healthy markets is focused on. We're focused on transparency. We're focused on trying to make markets easier to trade. We're trying to make investments cheaper for people to make. And that means we're trying to reduce costs and increase transparency, make them work more efficiently. That means everything from how trading happens, what the plumbing of trading looks like, to what you know about the company you're going to buy or the security you're going to buy. So we spend a lot of time on those issues. We work with the SEC and other regulators on the Hill. And with industry,
0: well, Tyler, tell us about. It sounds like you've got your finger on the pulse there in DC. Tell us about what you're seeing and what you expect to see out of all of this uh, this fervent day trading activity that we've witnessed over the
1: past few weeks in its extreme form. I mean, yeah, and and also, how concerning? How concerned are your pension fund clients with this? Is does Calpers really give a darn about? You know, guys trade in GameStop from their basements of their yeah. mom and dad's I, house, you know, in, in Massachusetts a, somewhere. Or
2: I think that's a really good question. And The answer is, look, they're investing in the markets. You know, our retirement funds and kids college savings funds are invested in, in the markets on the idea that our money is going into real companies. They're going to try to use that to generate real jobs and real products and real profits. But then to get returned as, as investment returns, right? And so our capitalist system relies on money going from investor to company, invested wisely in best uses, comes back to investor with a return on it. And in the meantime, we get a lot of good societal stuff. One of the things I think we have to realize over the last few weeks, we've seen in very, very high profile ways that the Actual fundamental assets are nowhere close to what you might think their real value is. You know, when we say GameStop is worth $5 a share or $10 a share or $7 a share or $20 a share, maybe reasonable minds can differ. I don't think anyone would argue it's worth $400 in a sort of credible fundamental value sense. And so we really have to question if you're a big institutional investor, you are worried. What the premise of the markets is. You're worried about the volatility of it. You're worried about the stability of it, but you're also worried, are these markets working to do what they're supposed to do, which is channel money into good companies and good ideas?
1: But we saw this 20 years ago, right? In the dot-com boom. I mean, you had That's exactly right. And this and is you ha- like... and you have, you know, Wall Street underwriting at that <laughs> point in time, a lot of these companies that were part of the dot-com bust people lost their shirts in, in that one. People are going to lose their shirts in this one. It seems like Wall Street is making money. Like Back then, 20 years ago, 22 years ago, it was the underwriting fees right? that the big banks, Merrill Lynch and Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs were collecting on dot-com stocks. Here, it seems to be the trading volume and getting the market order flow. And Robinhood's business model is essentially selling that market order flow. So it seems like That those types of institutions are making money in a different way here off of the trading fervor of investors. Look, so we've seen this
2: before, right? We've seen some of these things before, right? But we've never seen technology make it easier to trade than we have it now. We have never had, with the amount of deregulation we've had, investors can trade more quickly in more complex products with more leverage than ever before. But at the same time, they probably have less information about the thing they're trading, about the fundamental thing they're trading, right? And like I said, we've seen the growth. It's not just in real companies like GameStop or AMC. We also have seen this phenomenon with the proliferation of of blank check companies. We've seen it with cryptocurrencies. And we're seeing it sort of across asset classes. So I think we, you know, institutional investors, my members, are very concerned that again the fundamental premise of the markets is being challenged here, and how how are we going to respond so just to start the events in themselves, what happened with with Robinhood look we have a we have a system where a broker dealer is incentivized to make it easy for a retail customer to trade and to trade as low dollar amounts, but frequently and to trade with leverage and trade into options. So they get paid, the broker dealer gets paid more for options trades than for equities trades. And so the, because the market maker can make more money taking the other side of those trades. So what you've got is a system where the broker dealer and a market maker are incentivized to have a retail customer take on or a small institutional customer take on more leverage, trade in a more complex product. The The individual customer Thinks they're getting more bang for their buck. Mm-hmm. a five dollar option has more price impact on the marketplace gives you more exposure than buying five dollars worth of stock and because you can do it without an explicit commission now because of the payment for order flow, they're going to put in a five dollar order or a ten dollar order or a twenty dollar order that would have never existed in an old world. so we've created right. this endless trade
1: that's great context to to what's going on yeah. I think
2: and so now. You've got an amplitude. So instead of just buying $5 worth of stock, you're buying $5 worth of options, which adds leverage to that and has more impact on the marketplace, the market prices. So you're going to see a lot of discussion about conflicted trading practices and payment for order flow. But we also had, you know, Robinhood got $3.4 billion worth of private bailout money. That's a Mm -hmm. big deal. A lot of broker-dealers had to stop their customers. It was that much?
1: It wasn't, I thought it was a billion last, last no, I saw. No, no, no. They, they, they came back and disclosed
2: more. Oh, I didn't know so that. What, we're, what we saw, and they weren't the only one who had serious financial trouble. So let's think about this again. We have the customers are incentivized to to be on leverage and trade complex options. They're incentivized for it. We have the broker-dealers are incentivized for their customers to take on the risk and leverage. And we have the market makers are incentivized to have those customers take on the leverage and sort of options trading. So now you get that trading, you go to a time of of extreme volatility like we've saw. And the clearinghouse says, wait, we're worried about this because it can be a couple of days between when you make the trade and when everybody has to show up with their stock and their and their money. And we're worried that these customers may not have the money to put up for these trades or may not have the stocks. And so because of that, they make margin calls on the broker dealers, on the clearing firms. And those brokers didn't have the money. This is the same problem we saw in the financial crisis of 2008 and 2009. Right. The SEC's brokered capital rules didn't work then, and they still don't work. And so what we very nearly could have seen that we didn't, that we are very lucky we didn't, was the collapse of a retail broker-dealer. And the SEC is not prepared for that. How many thousands of people or more would have had you know, accounts that they couldn't access, that they couldn't trade with extremely volatile things like cryptocurrencies or meme stocks or something else? So I'm extraordinarily grateful that Robinhood was able to raise the capital that they did I'm grateful that other financial, other firms, other brokers were able to to meet the margin calls, you know, however they were able to do so. But I think the SEC and frankly, Congress are going to spend a lot of time thinking, how close did we come to a potentially catastrophic event? And what could that event have triggered? You know, Robinhood itself is not a systemically significant institution, but its collapse could still nevertheless have some pretty significant market-wide complications. And so we have to recognize, and I think the regulator is going to have to dig into that. So it's it's not just things like the incentives that get us there, the payment for order flow, but it's also going to be the capital and the riskiness to the overall financial markets. Right.
0: Are you saying that there are likely laws to be passed or at least to be pondered, that will take all the fun away. No more trading on your phone at the stoplight and stuff like that.
3: Yeah. I mean, look, I think it's arguable that
2: FINRA and the SEC have rules on the books that could apply and say, hey, you should really know more before you let people you know, default into an options account. I mean, I,
1: I well, have they're a. Under a cap. <laughs> what you're saying, Tyler, is they're under cap. They get. You know, the trading apps get away with doing business like this because they are so undercapitalized. But the SEC and FINRA do have these capitalization rules that have to be adhered to much more strongly, that it's cheap to do this because the companies are undercapitalized. Is that what you're saying? No,
2: it's I, I th- slightly different. I, I think what I'm say, saying is that when you talk about broker-dealer capital, The people that are like the Robin Hoods of the world uh, do not have a lot of capital. Banks have capital. Right. And as it turns out, the SEC's capital regime doesn't really require Robin Hood to have much. That's going to get reexamined, right? So there are rules in place that should apply. We'll find out whether or not they were complying with those or not. But what we do know is whether or not those rules applied and whether or not firms were complying
1: with them. They clearly didn't have enough. And You mean the, you know, mean it, the net it, capital rule? Correct. Could you explain what the net capital rule is? Yeah. So
2: essentially, unlike banks, and let's just go, I'll take a big picture. So in the banking industry, people think of capital. What is capital? Capital is how much money is your own? It's either retained earnings or shareholders' money. And so if a bank has $100 that they've lent out to the marketplace, They've raised $10 of money from shareholders or retained earnings, and 90 of it is borrowed. We say they have 10% capital, right? All 100% of it is lent out to the marketplace. But if they had a, a catastrophic loss, they could lose up to 10% of their investment and still be, for lack of a better phrase, solvent. So capital is viewed as like a buffer. Well, the banking regulators require capital so as to make sure the banks don't fail. The SEC's capital rules are not intended to prevent broker-dealers from failing. Right. They are explicitly not. So they take the position that Lehman Brothers, it was okay for Lehman to fail. They take the position that it would be okay for Robinhood to fail overnight because eventually all of those customers would get their money back. So the net capital rule is intended to basically say you, the broker-dealer, you can go you can blow up all you want but as long as there's you, there's basically the customers funds are sufficiently segregated and exist so that you are not putting their funds at risk now i would argue if a large broker dealer with lots and lots of retail accounts and all sorts of esoteric things like robinhood's customers for example right. fail what is the sec's ability or any regulator's ability to quickly ensure that those customers would get access to their assets. There's none. They do not have that capability. And that is something that they're going to now have to wrestle with. The SEC has always taken the view that they don't care if firms fail, unlike the banking regulators. I think that one of the lessons to come out of this may very well be that the SEC actually does have to care if broker-dealers fail, telling hundreds of thousands of people that they're not going to be able to access their account and maybe their livelihoods or or their life savings are at risk is not a great story to have to tell to the New York Times or to Congress.
0: Tyler, is this this situation with Robinhood in particular, is it unique because of the traders' access to things like options, leverage, and margin? If they were just straight trading stocks, buying and selling long, would this still be this type of a potential problem that you're
2: describing? Yeah, so the risk to them and the clearinghouse would have been significantly less. Okay. Well, so one of the things I think is the overall magnitude of the risk, how much margin they would have had to have been asked to post from DTCC or something else would likely be less if there was l- l- sort of less leverage going into it, right? And so I think that that would have a, a very big impact on the overall magnitude now whether or not a particular broker dealer fails it doesn't matter how or why they got there once they got there they got there and you know the mess that the sec would have to clean up and sipc would have to clean up i think unfortunately could be very very significant there are a lot of very large broker dealers i don't think our sipc or the sec is sort of prepared to deal with their collapse as much as they'd like to say they're fine with it
0: do you think that this is where the the regulators and the lawmakers are going to zero in, is on that? Or are they trying to shut down this whole gamification of investing?
2: Yeah, I think there's going to be a couple of different things. I think some people are going to focus on short sale restrictions. I think some people are going to focus on broker-dealer capital. I think some people are going to focus on gamification. I mean, gamification is an interesting thing because it gets you into trouble for being a little bit overly paternalistic, right? You mentioned, are we going to shut down all the fun? I think that's a real. It's actually a real phenomenon. There are people who are very concerned. The reason why this is democratization of capital, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, aren't we? Isn't the goal here to say we want everybody to have a chance? And why should we be paternalistically excluding from the marketplace a pharmacist with with you know making fifty thousand dollars a year from taking on margin? and putting out a $400,000 trade? Why would we- Yeah, but we options are
1: supposed, supposed to be for, for somewhat sophisticated investors, right? I mean, well, that's exactly this it. is, that's exactly this it. It. I mean, you know, 20 years ago, after the dot-com bubble crashed, when I was starting covering this business, firms used to make a big deal about the requirements that clients, brokers and advisors, but also clients would have to have to engage in options trading. It it seems like a lot of those guardrails about using options, which is extremely volatile and dangerous, have fallen off or something.
2: Well, yeah. I mean, I think the issue is I'm old enough to remember a former client of mine, a large retail broker dealer, was concerned because when they had clients, that they would blow themselves up when they started options trading. Right. And so all of you know, if and they looked across their client base and they were not good clients because after six months or a year, they would lose all their money and they would stop trading. And back then they were paid on commissions per trade. Right. And they were really upset about that. And so they tried to do things to make options trading harder and tried to make their own option, their customers better at it, more informed less risk tolerant, right? Like making them a little bit more sensitive to the realities of, of how these things work. And that was now 10 years ago. And what's really interesting is it, more than 10 years ago, what we're seeing now is basically everybody saying kind of a, I don't want to say a libertarian paradise, but a little bit of a free for all saying, anybody can do anything, have at it, good luck. And there's something <laughs> uniquely there's something uniquely right. American about that, right? right. There's right. something about everybody's got a chance in in the same way that everybody's got a chance on a winning lotto. But unlike the lotto, when you're trading options, you know, you might lose a lot more than that dollar. I think that's one of the things I'm not sure everybody appreciates. And unfortunately, you know, we've seen it with a suicide, unfortunately, last year. And I think we're right. seeing it now as I'm reading press reports after press reports of people talking about their life savings in recent events.
0: Yeah, what, what was interesting to me is obviously this was going crazy for a couple of weeks solid and things that seem to have calmed down. GameStop, kind of the poster child of this whole thing, was I think it peaked at around 400 bucks. Uh, remember, this is a stock that six months ago was trading around four dollars. And now it's down to fifty-three dollars. Maybe there's still some hopefuls still in there. But what do you think, Tyler, has kind of has kind of calmed things down? Are all these all these people on Reddit just kind of regrouping looking for their next target? I know they they took a, a pretty good nibble on silver for a, a day and a half, but what are your thoughts on where this is going? I can't believe all these people just went back to wherever they were before they started doing this. And I don't I, I like to think that they all, all weren't in their mother's basements. Some of them yeah are probably,
2: so like, a few things focus the mind quite as much as receiving a a document request letter from the Securities and Exchange Commission <laughs> and i I would say you know there's there's it reported that there's some of that that's been going on, right, yeah, but I also think you know there is a fair amount of it doesn't take an awful lot to move a market if it's going one direction, like we have to recognize again. A lot of small dollar trades with, with leverage can really move a market if it's one-sided. Again, the old, nobody wants to catch a falling knife. Nobody knows how big and powerful this group of retail traders might be or this group of retail traders with, frankly, again, there were clearly sophisticated hedge funds on both sides of these trades. So nobody really wanted to get in front of those trades. So now that I think, everybody's looking at it with sort of clear eyes. The SEC's made it very clear over the last several days with a few statements about market manipulation and enforcement and reading the message boards and digging in on things. I think there's enough people who are going, oh shit, what, what did I write on that message board? Let me quick delete. And I think there's a lot of folks who are also looking at their investing and saying like, I bought this thing for 20 bucks. It's now trading at 50. I've got one share, what do I care? and just sort of letting it ride or letting it or walking away and taking the profits and i think we're going to see a a fair amount of that and and i it's not surprising to me that it's trading at 50 i would be shocked if it goes back down to 5 bucks really anytime soon as we've seen with dogecoin or bitcoin or any number of penny stocks there are a lot of i think we saw this with you know Matt Levine wrote about this the other the other day or maybe it was today about Signal, even companies whose names are mixed up with other companies, once it's even cl- really clear, you know, this happened with Zoom as well, where there's a name mix up and people start thinking they're buying one company and they're really buying a different one. You know, the different one gets the benefit of that. And it, it tends to persist because mm-hmm. people just hang on to it and don't really care.
1: Tyler, was Robin Hood ready for this
2: Robinhood has been shockingly unready for most things, I think. They have developed an extremely effective app at making it easy to trade, and they have developed seemingly none of the other things that I would think would be relevant for the business of being a broker-dealer. It's almost like they decided to be an app developer, like a game developer, without thinking about this is an extraordinarily regulated business. So I'll just use their job. Their number one job after getting customers, right, is trading. And their job as trading is to get best execution. And they didn't even have policies and procedures. There's clear rules on this. They didn't have policies and procedures. Then when they got them, they didn't bother to follow them. They've had a couple of settlements already. They've put people into clearly, they've clearly made access to very risky products. There's investigations going out of Massachusetts. There's investigations going on other issues related to them. And and now the biggest things are, did they have enough capital on top of dealing with all of these other issues? Now they've got another new problem, which is, do they have enough money to even support their own customers trading? So look, they've developed a heck of a good app at making it easy to trade. But I'm, I'm really stunned by how flat-footed and underprepared they seem to be for the regulatory world in which they live, which is even more surprising considering they have an SEC commissioner now as their chief legal officer.
0: We talk a lot about Robinhood because they are like GameStop, kind of the poster child of this whole thing. But there are other ways to trade fast and for free out there. Is any of the fallout spreading to those platforms? And well, yeah,
3: I, mean,
2: I think it depends, right? There's the app-based ones, for example, like Weeble, which is, I think, a Chinese firm. And then there's the sort of traditional retail broker-dealers. I mean, the re- traditional retail broker-dealers, I think are are facing the same sort of financial pressures but they've been at this a long time they've got, for lack of a better phrase they've got the they've got best execution policies and procedures they've got more robust capital practices and those types of things in the case of Schwab it's a publicly traded company like there I think you have there's more infrastructure for them so we haven't so some of these trading firms I think there's a lot less infrastructure there's a lot more things that seem to be going wrong for lack of a better phrase and there seems to be a lot more risk. At the same time, they might be a lot more user-friendly. Um, yeah, I mean, the big firms, Tyler,
1: have hundreds, if not thousands of people who are paid, compliance people and lawyers like you, who are paid to freak out at the whiff <laughs> of right being on the, the wrong side of a downdraft like this. I mean, that's what, that's what those people are paid to do, the compliance officers of those big firms. Well, and that's right. Hundreds <laughs> of them.
2: You well, and know. that's how I started my career, right? I mean, this is this is exactly it. I mean, this is, they have lots of compliance folks. They have lots of legal folks. They may not have legal folks with fancy names and and former jobs, but they have people who've been doing it for 20 and 30 years, and they have a lot of them, and they have a lot of outside counsel. And right. you could argue that that's also a lot of overhead, right? Like it makes them bulky. It makes them slow to but it's adjust. it's an expensive
1: it's- business. The brokerage business, the securities business is inherently a very expensive business.
2: That's Well, that's right. And I think the other part is, you know, when you think about, you know, sort of dealing with the conflicts of interest that they have to wrestle with on a regular basis, they do that and they recognize that they have to navigate those things with the SEC. So I'll go back in time, you know, Robinhood, for example, for a while was going to offer a free, basically, you know, cash account that would right, be right. inferred, <laughs> right?
1: They made that went up. It sounded right. I mean, it's and like, I, how on earth did they do that? You know,
2: and, but they they got hundreds of thousands of people to sign up for it before they then had to go on. You know, this the, that was I mean, last I,
1: year or two years ago yeah, or something. Right. Yeah, And
2: they got hundreds of thousands of people to sign up for it. And then they were like, oops. You know, uh, sorry, I guess I guess that's not legal, right? Like you did a big ad campaign, right. got hundreds of thousands of people to sign up for these accounts, and then you realize that it's not legal when yeah. I am just a lawyer sitting in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in my office and someone calls me and asks me and I was like there's no way that can be true. That right. was it. it was, and I I mean I have to tell you I immediately thereafter reached out to SIPIC. Because I was like, is there something I'm missing here? And they were like, no. And the, the person who's in charge of SIPIC had to go on TV. I mean, I think this happened on a Wednesday, Tuesday or Wednesday. No, I, by, yeah, yeah. And by Friday, he's on CNBC basically saying, yeah, that, that, that doesn't work. Yeah. That way. That's not how we would. No, we do I that.
1: remember when that happened and we were sitting in the newsroom talking and saying, hold on, what are they, how are they doing this? You know, this, this can't be possible.
2: Yeah, that, that's exact. That's exactly right. And sort of anybody who had any familiarity with SIPIC, particularly post Sanford issues, right? Anybody who had any inf- you know reality of what the requirements were would recognize that that wasn't possible. And so you have a number of these things. So you have that concern. You have hey, your job is to get best execution for your customers. That's your your real job. And you don't even have policies and procedures related to it. And it's clear FINRA rule. Then you, when you have them, you don't bother to follow them. And now you have this issue, like, again, maybe they followed the capital rules. Maybe they followed all the rules to the letter of the T, but they clearly still had a problem. And that suggests that, you know, if the rules were followed, then the rules aren't right. And that's where I think the SEC is going to dig in. And I think, again, other broker-dealers experienced financial stress too, which lends itself to maybe this wasn't un- necessarily unique to Robinhood.
0: Tyler, we're getting kind of close to our uh, our end here but i wanted to just throw one more thing past you is the uh, that this stuff seems a little bit urgent and not the kind of thing that congress can just create a task force to create a committee and so it to me it means that lawmakers and regulators might do something fast and maybe a little bit heavy-handed what's your kind of they're in the healthy markets, crystal ball. What does it look like is likely to come out of this from a regulatory side?
2: Yeah, so I think we've sort of touched upon a few of these things. We're going to see a lot of thinking about conflicted order routing practices and payment for order flow. And conflicted order routing practices hit not just retail, but institutional. I think we're going to see that as a big focus. I think we're going to see short selling rules as a big focus disclosure regarding short selling and how that works. I think we're gonna see broker-dealer capital as a focus. We've obviously seen Robinhood said, oh, it's really, we gotta worry about T plus two. I'm not sure he understands how settlement works because he's got very lucky that he had T plus two or the firm would have had greater financial stress, I believe. But you know, shortening the settlement cycle is gonna be something that people talk about to reduce systemic risk because I think it would. So there are gonna be those types of things at the SEC, all of which are SEC rulemakings. I think Congress, as Congress will do, is going to have hearings. They're going to talk about legislation. Individual members of the House and individual members of the Senate will have pieces of legislation that would address each of the things I discussed in probably two or three versions of each kind of area, short selling, payment for order flow, whatever. And then we'll see what happens, right? Like, I don't think Chairman Gensler, if he's confirmed Really wants to spend the next year and a half on dealing with GameStop fallout. He's got a pretty damn big agenda in front of him on issues like addressing ESG and climate change and 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 worker stakeholder capitalism, uh, addressing fixed income securities and trading and risks. He's got a lot of stuff that he six months ago had on his agenda that he's going to want to get to. And so, I think the SEC is probably going to do two or three things. One of which is obviously enforcement investigations. I think Congress is going to try to do. Three, four, or five things, and then they'll try to see if they can. None of these bills are a big enough deal to do them on their own. So they'll see what they can tack into maybe a, a stimulus bill or something else. And that's where my day job is going to be, which is making sure that the way I look at it, smart versions of these things happen, and and dumb ones don't.
0: All right, uh,
1: Bruce. Any uh, final thoughts? Questions? I'm I'm all talked out with Tyler here, man. I can't, you know. <laughs> that was that was fantastic, Tyler. Thank you so much. Yeah, really good stuff. Tyler Galash, Executive Director, Healthy
0: Markets. We really appreciate you coming on and uh walking us through this. Thank you very much.
2: Hey, I really
1: appreciate it. Thank you. Hey, Bruce Bond, another Bruce. Got to like that two Bruces is better than one. I just wanted to talk to you, kind of get the ball rolling here a little bit. You know, your background, you're currently the co-founder and CEO of Innovator Capital Management, co-founder of PowerShares, an extensive background in the 20-year-old ETF industry. I remember writing about the original Spider Lady back in 2001 or two or three or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. you know, with the spiders and everything. Just curious as to how you came to this industry, how you, how, as a co founder of these companies, particularly PowerShares, you know, such a, such a tremendous brand with financial advisors, how you got started, where the inspiration for those came from. You know, were you out on a, a long walk in the woods, a run, a, you know, or cycling or watching a movie or something when, the, when these ideas come to you to, to start these things? And then who do you talk to to, to go about launching them? And thanks again for coming on by.
3: Oh, yeah. No, happy to do it and uh, happy to talk about it. You know, I think I have always kind of, uh, you know, I was a wholesaler, actually, originally when I started in the business and then went over to Naveen to help them get into the equity UIT business. And, and when and was that, it. Bruce? That would have been in like 99, late 98. So right around when, you know, the dot com fervor was happening right. and before the crash, you know, and, and we were introducing and were a lot of products, of products
1: being created back then, right? That was like oh, product absolutely. mania time. Yeah.
3: Yeah. In the UIT structure, I mean, there was bandwidth and B2B and, you know, everything you could imagine came out around all of that. And so I've always thought of, I've, I've had a lot of practice of launching products into the market, seeing what is interesting and, you know, what advisors are drawn to, what they value, what they don't. And then, you know, so I was there for a while at Nuveen. And I really, after looking at ETFs, believed that the structure of the ETF, not really, not even considering what was in them or what type of investment there would be held in there. But just the benefits alone of the structure would drive a tremendous amount of assets toward the space. And that's about when I decided to leave and start PowerShares. And we and did. when, have and when one, was that, Bruce? Again, that would have been about four years later. Okay, uh, five
1: years later. And two thousand four, two thousand five, something like that.
3: Yeah. Well. Yeah. Well, actually, O three, we the uh, first funds listed on the American Stock Exchange oh. in May of O three. So it was just a few years later. Actually, I left and started it and. The premise of power back then they were p- based on what was called the IntelliDex, and the IntelliDex huh. was for intelligent index. And <laughs> I, th- I think you know, there were there were all of these you know beta arrangements out there, right. but really what, by creating uh, my partner John Souther was a quant, so he 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 had an idea of. Hey, let's get in the ETF business and use some of this quantitative knowledge I had. And I was like, why don't we create smart indexes that bring value and put those in an ETF? And, and you know, back then there were no actively managed ETFs. And so it would allow us to bring value in the ETF structure. And, and be so that's different. what we did. And, yeah, and be different. And, and, and right. be different
1: from the competition, which when Absolutely. you're starting out, you always want to be key because the other... State yeah, Street every, and others, every, Barclays, State Street, et cetera, yeah. they were indexed. They were pure index. Yeah, DTS, they were straight right?
3: benchmarks, right? Straight right. vanilla. And we were like, look, if you want to buy average, buy an average, buy an average, you know. If you want to buy something that can provide the potential for outperformance, then you want to buy a power share, And that's where it all started. And and you know, we carved our own lane was the idea. You know, we would say, well, they're over there. If you just want beta, go buy that. But if you want something that gives you beta, but at the same time does it with stocks that are high ranking from a quantitative standpoint, then you want to participate with PowerShares. And that's how we built our own lane. And really, that's the same thing we've done with Innovator, too. You know, after selling PowerShares, you know, several years ago. Right we came back into the market to introduce the defined outcome products which are completely new uh, nothing like those in the ETF marketplace but again going back to that ETF structure that gives you tax efficiency liquidity transparency all those things that you know lower costs that advisors love to have in a product and just finding a really our own lane a lane that we could build a product category in and uh, that's what we've done now with uh, innovator.
0: Yeah, Bruce, that's that's what I want to talk to you about is is those that own lane concept that you were talking about. I I mean, you're a, you're an innovator uh um, from investment news probably by uh for more reasons than just the name of your company, I'm assuming. Um <laughs> I wasn't I was not involved <laughs> that's in the award, judging, Jeff, right? But, uh,
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> but you did you guys were the first ones to uh you you call them defined outcome ETFs, where we call them kind of more generically buffered ETFs. I, I want to talk a little bit about that product. I mean, you guys were the first ones to come out with them in August 2018. They make a lot of sense for a lot of reasons, especially at this time in the market. They I'm just going to sum it up for our audience that they they give you some protection on the downside and they cap the potential upside. And for that, you do pay a fee. I mean, we're getting index. It sounds exposure. like a variable
1: annuity, Jeff. Just to a
0: layman, I guess, right? Well, it sounds actually more like a structured product. But but yes, right. You you do pay a fee for this. So you can get the S and P 500 for two basis points, and these products are usually in the mid seventy basis point range. But um, what is interesting to me, and I'm not sure if this is uh, this is probably the the challenge Bruce that you face at Innovator is a. Uh, It's kind of educating people on these things, right? I mean, as I understand them and as I've written about them, they they have to be bought and held for at least the duration of 12 months, correct? In order to be perfectly effective.
3: Yes. in, In order for the investment profile to be paid out, you need to be in it for the full, what we call outcome period, which is typically one year. That being said, you can get out anytime. You know, If you want to liquidate and get out, you can get out. If you're up and you're like, well, I'm up, I'm just going to sell it and move on, you can do that. But in order for the reason you're in there, you know, if, for example, we say you have a 9% buffer on the downside and the market's down 5%, you can, it, you're going to be buffered against that. You're not going to experience any losses, but you have to hold that over one year in order for that that outcome to be there. Now, you can see that every day of where you're trading. But in order for the outcome to pay off properly, you need to be in there at the end of the outcome period.
0: But also, I think some things that are important to to explain is that if, for example, let's say, uh, and these things are issued monthly by some companies and quarterly by others, right? Do you guys issue yours monthly?
3: Yes, we have the 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 9 buffer, the 15 buffer and the 30% downside buffer on the S&P 500 is issued every month. So at the beginning of every month, you can buy in around the beginning of the month and get a brand new, you know, and and get what is is put out there at NAV. And and right. that's what a lot of people like to do.
0: This is something that I'm not completely clear on is if you let's say you bought the February version with a nine percent downside protection today well the s p is already up i think three percent from the beginning of the month so your downside protection isn't really nine percent if you bought it today correct it would be more like six percent because you 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 don't get right you're not you're, well or, no
3: well, it, it, well, it's, sorry, it's a little bit more
0: got like twelve go ahead.
3: Well, no. See, what it what it would be is the way to think about it is: let's say you bought it, and the ETF share is trading three percent over the starting, you know, the initial reset value. Right. Well, you actually have three percent downside exposure, and then you run into that buffer.
0: That's what I meant. So you 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 could yes. go down as much as twelve percent in that scenario.
3: You could go down twelve percent, but you would only lose three percent.
0: Right. But so what I'm what I'm saying is. The challenge is you really have to buy these things on the first day of the month,
3: right? You don't really have to. I mean, I think that's the easiest way to do it. And we tell people, look, this is really very simple. It's like buying the S&P 500 with a built-in buffer, and you can look and see what your cap is. But if you want to buy in the middle of the month, then I would tell you that a lot of advisors are buying and selling in the middle of the month. And they're repositioning their assets halfway through the outcome periods. And they're doing that once they get comfortable with the products. But if you go to the Innovator website, that's InnovatorETFs.com, and there's a product tool on there, and you can click on the product, and you can see that day exactly where it's trading, and what your uh, upside, you know, potential is to the cap, and what your downside before the buffer is, and how much buffer is left, or if you're in the buffer, where you're at in the buffer. So you can see all of that information. Any day you buy or sell the products just by going to the website and looking at it. And one of the things just for you guys insight, you know, I mean, we were we were wondering, you know, well, we're going to bring these and people will buy them at the beginning. And then they're just going to hold them and enter a year. There might not be much movement within the funds at all, buying and selling, which might not create enough you know, transactions in order to keep them trading close to NAV. Well, what we've actually seen is a significant amount of movement within the funds intra year as advisors, some of them, you know, they just make adjustments to their position. Well, if you think about it, if if you bought it, let's say you did buy at the beginning of January and you're up, I, I don't have it in front of me right here, but you're up six percent, for example. You could always take that. Let's say you're up six percent just As example, in uh, March, you could roll it into the new one in March and lock that six percent in and get a new nine percent buffer and a new upside cap. And that six percent now is buffered against losses. And so we have people that make those adjustments intra period, and makes them more comfortable to increase their cap and to build a buffer in. The challenge with that strategy,
0: Bruce, is that because these are using options to provide those buffers. If the S and is up six percent through March, you're not this. These funds aren't really up six percent, right? Because you have right, to hold right. them two to rate. Because it's sort of like the way uh, the way a mortgage works. You 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 you're paying all interest at first, and then as you get closer to the end, you're you're paying all principal. Well, that performance of your fund uh, or of the S and P and of your fund, they start it starts to get closer and closer together as the twelve month matures. So well, also think-
1: also, Jeff, we're talking about when the market keeps going up and up and up like a balloon, right? So what happened what happened last February, Bruce? I gotta say good day, Bruce. <laughs> good day. Uh, Monty yeah. Python. What 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 happened last February when the market wasn't wasn't going up and up like a balloon, but it was falling like a knife for three or four weeks there?
3: Well, exactly. And and you can go to the website and take a look at that. But it it they did uh, I think one of the things we're very excited about is it worked exactly as they were prescribed. And like Jeff is describing, what happens is there's time value in the options. And so the share price doesn't move around with the market dollar for dollar at the beginning. You know, it does move directionally with the market, but it doesn't move quite as much as the market, and because of that, it uh, you know, you, you're not gonna get. It. If the market's up six, you may be up three or four. If the market's down six, you may only be down three or four because of this time value. But what it tends to do, uh, Bruce, to your question, is it tends to really flatten out your return and 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 mitigate those highs and lows intra period and give you a very smooth ride to the end where you will get. Either the upside performance to the cap or wherever the S&P ends, or a buffer on the downside if it ends down. And I think that's what advisors really, really love about the products. If you guys think about it, how many equity par- products can you buy today and look out in, the, in one year and say, okay, if the market's up 15%, like we just did our 9%, if you look on the website, the starting cap was 18% and you have a 9% buffer, Okay. So if you could buy that February 1st and say, okay, I'm going to get 18% of the upside, I'm good with that. I mean, you know, the market average is less than that, and I'm going to get 18%, and I got a 9% buffer on the downside. We're trading at all-time high PEs and all-time highs in the market. We could see a downturn, but I mean, I don't know. I mean, are we going to have another COVID? No one knows, right? right. So. You can do that and know that you're going to get 18% of the upside. You may not get capped out at all. You might get, you know, right. You may only be up 15%. You're going to get 100% of that, but you're going to do that ride with a 9% buffer. But
0: but that's that's my point. And I, and I am a fan of these products, by the way. Yeah. But I do believe that people need to fully understand that. You can oversimplify this by saying you can lock in gains in March if the market is up 6% because you're not tracking the market until the very end of this maturity. And also, I think it's important to point out that all of these buffered ETFs are not created equal. The fees are roughly in line, but I mean, it's all about what the options cost. Some have 9% downside protection, some have higher, I don't know of any that have much less. But I've also noticed some like yours will will say we're going to cap your downside at nine percent or whatever some will say you absorb the first maybe five or seven percent and we'll take the rest of that you know what i mean they they have the reverse of the buffer it's uh
3: jeff that is a great point And, and one thing i would encourage anyone to do based on the things you buy is to make sure you understand what you're buying and these are not a vanilla ETF. They bring tremendous risk management value to the table that most advisors don't have access to today. But you do want to understand what you're buying. And Jeff, to your point, we have a product that is a 30% buffer, but the buffer doesn't start until negative five. So it runs from negative five through negative 35. And that means if the market ends up down five, you're going to lose five. But if the market ends up down 35, you only lose five. And so this is a great product for people that, you know, they're just really fearful of the market. They're sitting in cash. They need some growth in the market, but they're not willing to get into the equity market without a really, you know, without a big safety net. And and that's what I would encourage people, you know, to, to really look at and to know about. None of these products are meant to try to fool anybody. They're, they're meant to deliver certain value that we think are high values. And I, I think the, the, the point that I was making earlier that I didn't do so well, to be honest with you, is that if you think about it, a lot of these risk management tools that we have out there or products, you know, that uh, either they're low beta or are, um, you know, dividend yields, I mean, a lot of times they don't perform that well when the market goes down. This is a product that you can participate in, and you know your buffer, and you know your upside participation. It's a known. You're taking an unknown future in the equity markets and making it a known, or at least putting it in a box, in a range of potential outcomes. And for most people, that known has a huge value to it. So that's why so many assets have been attracted to these over the short term, because people, you know, they don't... You know, sometimes I call it naked exposure. You're just exposed to the market naked. You know, if the equity market goes up, we're all happy. We all make money. The equity market goes down, we all go down. And so that's why I think having a product like this, that most people should have a portion of those assets invested in something like this to give them a more knowable and reliable outcome uh, in their portfolio. Mm -hmm.
0: And also, I want to point out, I think think it's with all of these products that they roll over automatically into the next year if you hold them for the duration. Correct? Yeah, that's
3: exactly correct. Jeff. So like if you bought that 9% this February and a 9% buffer next February, it's just going to, it's going to reset or, you know, rebalance. Think about it like an index rebalance. It just rebalances and it goes for another year to the following February. But next February gives you a new cap and a new buffer. And then you just go again. So, you know, going forward, you're going to get the upside cap, whatever the market will give you, and you'll always have this nine percent mm-hmm. buffer built in over the the following twelve months, or a fifteen buffer, or a thirty buffer. Okay.
1: Well, Bruce, do you have anything else for Bruce Bond? Yeah, just, Bruce, just w- one quick follow up. What is the cost of these things? The range of the costs. You know, in in terms of general, you don't have to cite. Chapter and verse. No, it's fine. It's not a you know, problem. From, at all. The, yeah. from the filings. But I guess the more buffer you, you get, you're buying, the more expensive these things would be, right? Well,
3: no, no, it, it's not because you're, you know, the how the buffer is paid for is through giving up upside. And so what happens is the greater your buffer, the lower your cap. And so to give you an example for February, so as we mentioned, the 9% buffer had an 18% cap. Okay, the fifteen percent buffer is eleven point seven three percent cap. Okay, and then the thirty buffer and had a seven point eight zero percent cap. So you know the caps kind just, of here. Just down. so we're
0: just so right. we're clear for some people that aren't as sophisticated as the three of us, the buffer <laughs> is the downside protection. That means that you're protected to that much of a potential loss. Right. The cap is how much you can potentially gain. Exactly. So If you're capped at thirteen percent, any if the market goes up. Seventeen at the end of the year, you only gained thirteen. That's
3: exactly right. So if the buffer was
0: thirteen, you say buffer in yeah, and
3: it's important for people to know that the like uh, the fifteen percent buffer. If the market's down twenty percent over one year at the end of the outcome period, you would lose five percent. You know, so you lose percentages the further it goes below the buffer, and um, that's how it works. So you're buffered from the first losses from the first nine percent from the first fifteen. And then for the 30, from negative 5 to negative 35.
1: All right.
0: Good stuff. Bruce, you want to take us home?
1: Yeah. Hey, Bruce Bond, thanks so much for coming by. Jeff Benjamin, thanks for uh, you know being here as always. Ben. Yep. Thanks for having <laughs> me, guys. <laughs> so... That was uh, another episode of the Investment News Podcast. We launch every Monday, as our loyal listeners know. Uh, We want to thank, once again, our special guest, Bruce Bond, the co-founder and CEO of Innovator Capital Management. We also want to thank Stephen Lamb, our producer. You can find the podcast, of course, at investmentnews.com, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, and Stitcher, please punch some stars on apple leave us a review and follow us on spotify our twitter handles are benji rider for jeff benjamin and me i'm at bb news guy Uh, stay tuned and we'll be talking to you next week